Okay, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, we'll get started here at 2.30, so. Um, introduce myself, so my, my name is John Black. I'm the uh, SVP of New Product Development at Brain Corporation. So welcome, uh, and also for, uh, for the video, for those of you who didn't make it to Modex, uh, I'd like to say uh, to hi to everybody there. Uh, our booth is located just uh, uh, probably uh, less than 500 feet away, uh, right behind us here. So start out with just give you a little bit of an introduction to uh, Brain Corp before getting into kind of the meat of my talk. Uh, we're an industrial, we're a, a software robotics company out of San Diego, uh, California. Um, we uh, roughly run about 10,000 machines today in public spaces. Um, and we've, we've accumulated about a million hours and about a million miles now of automated, uh, automated operation within those spaces. So from a standpoint of automation, um, you know, the Modex show, you guys are very familiar with automation. Um, in the public commercial space, um, it's really a new kind of emerging market, right? Um, so that'll be a lot of what I talk about today is really um, understanding this distinction between um, what's, what's known here more as industrial automation with what's known in the commercial spaces or public spaces more as robotics, right? And it's really what are the distinctions between those two um, and how do these worlds kind of merge in and do we play together for that? So the biggest distinction to start with that I'm sure most of you are already familiar with is, is a term that's becoming familiar um, called AMRs. So uh, autonomous mobile robots. These are, these are robots or autonomous equipment operating in spaces without infrastructure, right? Or they're operating typically not on a defined path, okay? So um, whereas in the industrial space, AGVs known forever, um, they're really good at what they do but they require a lot of infrastructure in order to do it, right? So a very tailored environment, uh, a very integrated solution, a very efficient solution for that. Okay. Um, as you start to move towards commercial robotics, you start to get a little more flexibility in dedicated robots, right? Um, and as you move into commercial robotics and AMR, what you move into is dynamic spaces and complex spaces um, and a very flexible setup for automation. And this is really where, where we, play, uh, we play the most. So I'm gonna play a quick video, uh, one of our biggest customers. Um, you'll see BrainCorp uh, uh, typically associate a lot with Walmart um, as, a, as a big scaling customer for the cleaning equipment. Uh, so this is uh, really to show you how easy it is for one of our pieces of autonomous equipment to operate um, with, I would say, a non-technical operator. Right? So for us to scale in the retail environment, um, it has to be adoptable and it has to be able to be learned very, very quickly. Right? So you're, you're talking about typically labor forces that have extremely high turnover rates. Um, and this isn't just, uh, this isn't just Walmart um, or one retailer. This is sort of across the board, uh, especially in the cleaning industry. Right? So sometimes you have turnover of 300% or more in a year. Um, a lot of times you have temporary or contract workforces for this. Um, and it also applies to what we'll go into later, which is, is stocking. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll let you listen and, and see, um, I'll say a perspective from an end user and a customer. I, I enjoy technology, yeah. The two hours that someone would have had to walk behind the scrubber is now two hours they can be doing something else in the store. So the technology they're putting in the store is what's making it easier to do our job, making it more efficient, lets us keep our price down. 
So you bring it to its home, which we have these posted all over the store. We have different ones. Then you come over to the screen, and this is your basic when it boots up. You see this. You hit choose route. You select the one you want. You put your safety guards in place so people don't get on and trip the emergency stop. And you just hit the blue button in the back and it will go. So that's a, that's a typical day in the life, I say, of one of our machines. Um, the, uh, the, the basics for that to what allows kind of the scaling is, again, the ease of use of that and the ease of setup, right? So the, the janitor that, uh, that you saw on the screen talking, he's also the one who actually set up the routes, right? So he's the one who, quote, unquote, programmed the robot or the machine for this application. And he did that by basically doing a teach and a repeat. Right? So he cleaned the space the way he wanted to that fit within the processes of the store. Um, so there's typically a stocking process that goes together with a cleaning process. Uh, cleaning typically comes right after. So they'll stock an area maybe, then they'll clean that area, and they'll sort of zone, um, they'll zone the application. And in order to do that at scale, you have to empower those operators to be able to set that up themselves. Right? So if we look at um, BrainOS and the platform now, that makes that possible, okay? So one, we're, we're a, a, a pretty small company, okay? So how do we achieve scale, right? We do that through partners and we do that through platforms, okay? So our goal, uh, I'll, I'll uh, not be shy about, is we wanna be the biggest robotics company that never builds a robot, right? And the reason we wanna do that is because we're not the hardware experts and we're not the application experts, okay? So what we need to focus on is we focus on the platform layer. And by focusing on the platform layer, what you can do is you can aggregate the economies of scale with multiple partners, okay? So as I go into more advanced AI and kind of behavioral robotics, the investment is, is very large, right? So to make that investment, to stay ahead of that curve, to continue to make your machine world-class, right? You can, you can spread that across a lot of partners and you can focus on platform. So, the thing that in the commercial space, I'll say was the buzz maybe two, three years ago, was uh, uh, basically called freeform navigation, right? So navigation based primarily off of like visual scan matching, okay? No infrastructure. Um, and it was pretty impressive a few years ago just to get a machine to navigate within those spaces, okay? I would argue four years ago when we first started kind of down this path in a commercial standpoint, um, there was no robot that could really navigate around a full retail store environment, okay? Today, I would say that's not true, right? Navigation is already becoming fairly commoditized, even at a highly complex and um, dynamic situation, okay? But if you look at it, navigation is, is actually only one really small piece to the robotics business, okay? And it doesn't allow for scaling, okay? What you need is you need everything wrapped around that in order to bring product to market at scale. So when we look at what platform is, one, it's on how do you enable partners and OEMs to build at scale on the top side of this. And the other one is that after you've built all these robots at scale, right, how, do you how do you support those at scale? So what a lot of our investment is going into now and most of our development is really around tools for partners. Right? So from a manufacturing standpoint, um, how quickly can I help you set up a line to do some fairly complex integration 
of systems, right? So we're talking, um, we're talking OEMs that now need to load software, provision software, calibrate software, um, and essentially like qualify these machines at the end of the line um, at a pretty high level. And they need to do it, I would say, at a high throughput, and they need to do it with the workforce that they already have today. So getting a, uh, I'll say, a tool set for our software to load with red light, green light, right? How do I troubleshoot this if it's not right? How do I load it quickly by plugging something in at the end of the line? That's where we're focused a lot on, um, and it really allows for the scaling with the manufacturing partners. Um, on the other side of this, when you go to deployment, right, how do I do a drop-off deployment? So specifically, if you know AGDs, like imagine an AGD that just shows up in a crate, the customer drives it off, and they set it up themselves, okay? Knowing how many, I'll say, automation integrators there are at the show today, I'll say AGDs, right, have solved that problem through a very labor-intensive way with integration, okay? In order to scale the new modern robotics, um, what I'll argue is we're at the point now of drop-off installation and deployment. So you can get a automated floor scrubber and in essence with the video on the screen have enough knowledge for an average operator to be able to set that up and to run that. Okay? Now you still might require some consulting work from a standpoint of I really want to get high efficiency out of this, but you have basic operation essentially right out of the box. So we're, we're kind of lowering that bar again to automation and making it available for everyone. So the other side of this is just on the software side. So I think uh, with most automation um, and a lot of robotics at least, um, you sort of start with this, right? You start with the base OS and you start with maybe maybe ROS as, as call it a middleware, okay? Very functional and a great starting point, right? But it's not a scalable robotics business, okay? So this is of course the first place we focus on. So one, we, we do maintain ROS compatibility because it's important and it's a huge infrastructure out in the development community, right? But what we do to that is we, we basically harden that, okay? So at a, at a base OS layer, um, think about things like secure boot, think about things like encryption, safety, um, and just a support standpoint, right? So when, uh, uh, when Ubuntu goes to the next route, right? Who does that work in order to upgrade everything, right? The system that you've integrated, do you have to do the work to upgrade that if you're an OEM? What platform allows us is that we do that in the back end. So our OEM partners never even know or care um, what version of Linux is running. Okay. Going back to now, how do you how do you develop that into a scalable business? You know, one, you have to make it adaptable. Okay. So one of our, our key things that we've done um, that has led to so far our success uh, to date, right, is we've been able to blend our, um, I'll say use the same code base across multiple applications. Okay. So one is you don't want to have to develop your solution for every single application. Right? You need something that's extensible. The way you make that extensible on the bottom side is a hardware extraction layer. Okay? So how can I make this more parameter based to do more applications from an OEM standpoint? Um, the other piece to this, uh, you'll see it with simulations, right? is how can I guarantee functionality of this new robot from day one? Right? You do that with data, data sets and simulations. So when we integrate with a new OEM partner, what I can guarantee you is that almost out of the box, you can go into, for example, any retail store and be fully functional. Right? With 
without spending, I would say, months or years in that store at 2 a.m. trying to tweak everything, okay? So that, that guaranteed functionality is sort of the key for speed to market and scalability. Now on the top side, what I had talked about is navigation is an essence commodity already, right? Now there's, there's huge degrees of how good your navigation is, okay? And, and there's a lot of differentiation there. Um, but for us, it is a, you know, it is a core, um, what I would call a core application on our platform, right? Today, I'll argue we have one of the best localization and navigation and path planning um, that's out there. But we also realize in the future, we may not, right? So we want to make that opened up to everybody to be able to uh, uh, use basically the best in class. Okay? The other piece is, though, we talked about like the manufacturing deployment apps. Again, that's a huge focus in order to do the business. Okay. But now you add connectivity, right? And what I'll argue is that any robot or automation that you deploy today, if you're not connected, it's almost obsolete the minute you deploy it, okay? So this is why we specifically call ourselves a robotic software company, and it's because our business model is software-based, right? We're a SaaS company, and the idea is that software will iterate way faster than hardware. So the hardware you have might live for 10 years, but every month or every quarter, I can push a new build that makes it operate better, faster, cheaper, and more efficiently. Right? So I can continue to push new functionality. Um, I can continue to monitor things. I can add applications on top of that. Um, and if you think like a software company, right, it gives you that speed. So that's where the cloud comes in. But even after you've now developed this entire stack um, and you have this perfect product, Again, what you're missing here is one of the key parts, right? And that's the OEM partner base, okay? So if we were to build our own robots, we're limited by our own scale of building those robots and deploying those robots. By partnering with OEMs to do this, right, we're leveraging essentially nationwide and global sales and service fleets. We're leveraging 100 years plus, probably for each, each partner of their manufacturing experience Right, that, that we don't have to gain as a startup. So it's, it's really focusing on what you do well and then leveraging kind of that community around you. Okay. So typical application, um, we, we kind of break things into uh, two, two groups. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no reason I'll say other than one's a bigger machine and one's a smaller one. So we, we affectionately call them big and little. Right? Uh, big machines, and this is what, what I found is probably the most differentiating from the majority of automation at Modex or in the industrial area. So we offer a, uh, a fully integrated kind of architecture for the way we solve the problem of functional safety. Okay? The, the big platform, what you see is a PLD rated machine running a SIL2 controller for safety. Okay? Um, in the public space, we're actually operating at a safety level in essence, higher than in the industrial space, okay? It's the same PLD, but from a functional safety standpoint, right, we're in the public, okay? And what that means is you have a non-controlled environment and you have no assumed liability of the people in and around the machine, right? And I'll, I'll say what it is is that, you know, we have to protect the two-year-olds, okay? And there aren't two-year-olds typically in an industrial space, right? There's a reason for that. So that's what puts our safety class uh, essentially up a level. And the way that we do that is, is we use a, uh, in essence, a, a, lot, of, a lot of sensors um, and in a sensory fusion model. And I'll, I'll get to that kind of later. 
But what it is is, in essence, a, a safety-rated controller um, running a lot of redundancy um, on, on a machine of this size. Now, the little one, uh, little robots are, are really not small enough, I'll say, to hurt you unless they fall on you from three stories. Okay? So from a safety standpoint, really the criticality of like littles is the cliff protection. Right? These run um, typically a, a lower base processor, kind of a mobile processor. Um, this one is uh, it's either a, like, a, like a Snapdragon or an NVIDIA. Again, cost conscious and low. What's, what's important though about platform is that these two classes of machine are running the exact same Brain OS software. Right? So we've bridged, in essence, all the way from a, a low functional safety environment with a little, uh, a little machine and a mobile processor, all the way up to a full safety class environment, large machine, um, with, in essence, a high, a high power uh, processor over the top of a real-time safety processor. So that's, that's kind of the background of, of, of Brain. Um, and then what I want to get into for, for this talk is really talking about kind of this last 500 feet. Um, now, what this is is uh, I think it's because automation hasn't been in the commercial space available, right? Is that when we talk about supply chain, um, t supply chain is typically, I'll say, from raw material today through manufacturing through distribution until it gets shipped to the back door, right? And at that point, we, we in essence stop the supply chain from the automation standpoint, okay? It gets closed loop because those customers, um, the customers and the buyers are still placing orders, so that ties it back in. But from, you know, if you look around the show today, again, all of the equipment and all of the automation, right, sort of stops at that back room today. So what, what we're looking on is, if you, you take a, I'll say one definition of supply chain, right, so I'll, I'll read this one, is supply chain is a network between a company and suppliers to produce and distribute a specific product to the final buyer. Now the key there is who is the final buyer? And in retail, as an example, the final buyer is actually the customer, right? It's not, it's not the retailer. So how do you get the product all the way to that customer? Okay. In a non-retail application, Right, so take a, almost like a FedEx DHL, right, is you, you've ordered something, now it ships, right, and it gets to that, that end customer, right. Well, you also have kind of an end operator, which is typically called like the last mile, right. So how do I get it from the last distribution center or from the truck to the final, the final customer, okay. So now with, I'll say, modern AMRs through platforms, uh, through what we work on, we're now able to do um, let's call it the, the last 500 feet. Um, I don't know that I love that as a buzzword, so I'm not sure that one's going to catch on. But in order to explain it, that's that's kind of the best uh, the best buzzword I had, which is how do how do I get it all the way to the customer's hand? So I'll show you here. This is a great solution. moving in the public space.
So admittedly, I think I actually have uh, probably one of the funnest jobs in our company, which is uh, dreaming up new applications for Brain OS. Right? So what, what you see here is a, a version of a robot for moving stocking carts, right? of which, again, we'll, we'll never build this. Right? So we, we have a demonstrator running over in the booth. Um, this is what I look at as a reference design. Okay? So as we work with uh, OEM partners, the goal is can we solve a problem using our automation um, and basically prove how easy it is to get into basically a new automated solution, right? Um, the reason we do these reference designs uh, in, in, I'll say, full functionality, uh, it took us about, uh, about two months to go from uh, a sketch on a piece of paper to fully functional for this video, okay? Um, there's a lot of work to really harden that product from a product design standpoint, right? But to prove functionality, it's sort of that easy, right? So when we first started this, um, one of our core product lines that we started in was floor care. Right? This, uh, this first product you saw here, uh, we would always say it was, it was kind of a floor scrubber with an identity crisis. Right? And part of that is to just show, again, how easy is it to go to new applications based on a, on a platform perspective. Right? Um, so with this one, uh, we have two OEM partners that are, that are brand new working on, um, on this area of product. Uh, one is Dane Technologies. Uh, the other is uh, Unicarriers or UCA, um, part of Mitsubishi Heavy Industry. Um, so they're going to be the ones to really develop this product into kind of the high reliability from the mechanical um, and the product perspective. We're going to focus on, again, the navigation piece of this um, and being able to operate in these complex spaces. Now, I talk a lot about retail just because that's really where, where we have a lot of our market today. Um, retail is, is a very big scalable sort of opportunity, so it's a good place to start. Um, but there's nothing that limits this machine moving into the back warehouse. So, so that's an interesting distinction, I think, with a lot of industrial automation. Most industrial, um, industrial automation is, is completely not appropriate or applicable within the public space, right? They're kind of moving in that direction. Um, but a lot of the stuff you see, again, it's very safe and it's very applicable in a collaborative space in a warehouse. But when you get into the public space, right, again, you're in a much more kind of free flow, free form uh, type application. Um, so what it means is that there is kind of this big barrier coming from industrial into commercial, um, but there's not the same barrier going backwards. So if I'm safe around a two-year-old, I'm safe around a uh, um, kind of an employee or a workforce, okay? So that's where we look at basically what applications within, say, flexible manufacturing, uh, warehousing, um, those type of applications do we also go into um, beyond the commercial side. Okay. Um, but now we talk about like how do you sort of bridge this gap, right? So what is, what is that distinction that I talk about between these two, these two places, okay? So when we first look at it, we, we talk about environment and that's pretty easy for everybody to understand, um, kind of first, first at mind, right? One is the general public versus an educated or a controlled workforce in a controlled environment, right? So in the back warehouse, you have controlled interactions, you have training, um, you have a lot of integration typically. Right? In the public space, you have general public, right? You have a lot of now uh, cell phone zombies, um, you have uh, children to worry about, um, you just have general, I'll say, customer behavior or uh, people behavior in those spaces 
who are just unfamiliar with automation. Now, what's good about that is, is they're becoming very comfortable very quickly with it. All right, so again, it's not really a surprise to see something automated um, in your home or in a public space. And that, that's actually good for everybody um, from, from our standpoint is that you know, it does help sort of that comfort level. Um, and comfort is also sort of safety. Okay. The other piece about this is when you get into the application layer now, right, if you think about the application, one thing that, that we learned along the way, right, in the industrial space, there's, there's technical employees. Okay. So typically when you introduce automation, there is a engineer on site or there is a technician on site whose job it is to use that automation, set up that automation, support it and kind of keep it running. Right? So if you need to change it, you have someone there who uh, I'll say knows how to get into the programming in order to change it. Okay? In the businesses in the commercial space, right, those businesses were never set up that way. Right? So typically there's not a technical person on staff in order to do that. Right? It's outsourced maybe through a consultant or through a company who's coming in. Right? But what you're doing is you're, you're now working with operators who are non technically trained, okay? And that's a, that's a big distinction from a scaling standpoint, okay? So it goes back to like, how do I drop this off and it just works? Um, it's getting much more to, I'll say, the, the iPhone model of I can figure it out myself versus the old, uh, you know, kind of the Windows or the green screen model where you had to program just about everything, okay? Uh, the other one is that um, operations in industrial, right, is operations. Everything within that building is set up to be operationally efficient. Okay? You get to control the entire environment. You get to set it up for efficiency. You get to change things that you need to change in order to make it work. Okay? In the public space, it's actually designed for the customer. Right? It's designed for the people operating within that space, not the infrastructure. Okay? Now, you can argue that you can change that. And as you do kind of greenfield builds, you can do that. You can design stores that are more friendly for automation. You can design buildings that are more integrated, right? That's a huge infrastructure build in order to get to that level, okay? So for quicker adoption, you work within the infrastructure that you have, which means you operate within the environment that already exists and the environment that's the most friendly for the customer or for the public, not for the equipment. Um, and that's a, that's a really big distinction, I think, between sort of these two worlds. So one we talked about is this non-technical setup, okay? So how do I drop this off um, with essentially not ever having to open up a laptop, okay? So if I look here, um, this is a really bad example, I'll say, or um, imagine if, uh, if your odometry completely broke and you're doing almost a LiDAR scan, okay? This, this is sort of what a map can look like. Um, can anybody guess uh, what, what this map is of? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna refine it a little more automatically for you. You can think about this is, this is in essence what we do, right, in a fully automated way. Okay, now does it start to look familiar to what this environment is? Right, okay, this is the makings now of the main aisles of a retail, okay. If I expand that, this is what we're able to do in a single pass mapping and routing operation, okay? So no laptop required, fully automated process in these types of complex environments. So what we're looking at here is we're looking at retail stores that are 100,000 plus square feet um, in single passes. We're looking at, um, I'll say large, uh, 
a large distribution warehouse for, say, like semi-trucks, so big open spaces, right? You have to rely a lot on more of like dead reckoning for that, um, but it has to be robust enough to still close the loop on those, even when sensors for visual matching can't actually like reach the walls. Um, the other one you have is some pretty complex ones, which are long straight routes, right? So places where you can easily get like a lot of drift and a lot of um, inference to kind of tolerance losses through all of those scanning systems. But getting to the point where you can close all these maps reliably, repeatably, every single time without any post-processing, right, is what allows um, for scaling and allows for adoption, okay? So this, these are maps, uh, these are all done, again, on the robots. Um, after they're processed, they're pushed up to the cloud. These all go into the data set, which is, again, what allows us to do simulation. Um, it allows us to guarantee that we can close all these loops and that if we uh, develop another robot with another partner that they can operate within these spaces uh, efficiently from day one. Okay. The second piece is it gets into the safety control system. So talking about um, like PLD level systems, SIL2 level control systems, the way we approach this is we do this in a very integrated fashion and I'll say in a, in a pretty simplified um, uh, model of it. In essence, what we're doing is we're running a high-level controller for AI and navigation, which allows us to do things like close really complex maps, put in very complex uh, behavioral models for operating within those spaces, and we run it over the top of a low-level safety system. Okay. This is, uh, I'll say, in an integrated way, one of the ways that we can also take a lot of cost out of that hardware. So today in industrial automation, this is, this is typically done with the, uh, I'll call it the yellow safety LIDAR system. Right, so you typically run two redundant systems completely independently. Okay, you're running a navigation system um, based either off beacons or maybe visual scan matching um, as they get more sophisticated. Um, and then you're running like a safety watchdog over the top of that, which is in essence your, um, call it your virtual curtain with your safety LiDAR. Okay. Uh, the way to think about the, the, the brain, uh, um, our robots, think about kind of that whole front shroud as in essence being one yellow safety system because we're doing that all by um, this type of safety architecture in the background, right? And then we're doing it by a very complex sensory fusion model in the foreground. So how we bring, how we bring the information in. Um, in the public spaces, you need significant coverage around a vehicle in order to get all of those safety cases solved, okay? So this is where taking a lot of sensors, really bringing them all together into one model um, is what gives us the coverage that we need from a functional safety standpoint putting that through an integrated safety control system is how we're able to achieve those safety standards uh, from an operations perspective. Okay. And I'll say doing it in a way that's fully integrated is what allows us to achieve price points for OEMs um, that are lower than, than any other system out there. Okay. Part of the other pieces of public space is, uh, and this is true in the industrial space as well, but it's, it's these operational zones. Okay. The difference being is that in dynamic environments in public space, um, we change these dynamically, right? So as we are in those spaces, you'll see things like confined, uh, confined space, right? So what are, your, what are your freedoms for exit, right? Um, if I look at, say, a, a retail model where I have shelves that are fairly close together, right, we're gonna operate at a slower speed, we're gonna have some little different behaviors within that space, um, and we're gonna just allow for sort of more time to react uh, to the autonomy. Now when we talk about speed, that's one of these really interesting ones because what I'll say is, is 
perceived safety is part of actual safety. Okay? So one, you have the actual safety of the machine, right? which is where you get to, again, your SIL2 kind of controllers. Right? But perception is a little bit of reality. If, if our machine, say, say a machine drove at you at 20 miles an hour, and right before it hits you, it locked up the brakes, and it went within an inch of your, your nose, but it stopped. Right? You're safe, but did you, did you feel safe? Okay? So if you look at when you talk about speed, you really get into, um, I'll say, interacting with people and interacting with the public is all about this, this kind of behavior model with speed. Okay? So to the right-hand side, oh, let me go back. It actually doesn't come up on this. Uh, I lost something here. So if you look at distance from person in the white space out there, in essence, the the machine or the robot is far enough away from you that it really doesn't matter. Okay, so if I have a if I have a machine driving across the back wall, you know it's going 100 miles an hour, right? It really doesn't affect me, and I can look at it and see um, I'm really not in any danger. Okay, as that starts to come towards me, right? The faster it comes towards me, you'll see the farther the distance is that I start to get nervous. Okay, if I have a freight train coming at 100 miles an hour, right? I'm going to start getting nervous pretty quickly. Right? And I'm going to want to basically interact and move out of the way very soon. Right? As we get into the public spaces, knowing how fast you can approach somebody where they feel comfortable, and you allow for enough time for that, I'll say, very natural interaction. Okay? If you or I walk down a hallway towards each other, right, and we notice each other, long before we ever collide, we can kind of decide who's going to go right, who's going to go left, um, who's going to be more assertive, who's going to be more passive. Right, within that, uh, that interaction. Um, and that's really that interactive space. Right? There's a lot of nonverbal cues. Um, so as we do robotics in this space, we have to basically build out behavioral models that kind of imply some type of intent so that people can intuitively interact with those. Okay? As you get closer to what's called like personal space, right? personal space I'll define as really, it's too close to me and I don't like it there. Okay? Like, that machine sort of better be stopped if it's within that space. And even if you look at this, even if it is stopped, it might be too close to me to be comfortable. Okay. Which leaves this little tiny zone, which called the negotiating zone, the negotiation zone. That's the one where two people are kind of coming towards each other, right? They both decide to go left at the same time. Then they both kind of flinch. Then they wait for the reaction. They both go to the right. And you get this little dance, okay? That's, that's the zone where they don't actually hit each other. Okay? But it's not a very efficient interaction. So if you think about efficiently operating within a public space, if you're operating within that negotiation zone, you're going you're gonna to have a pretty poorly efficient interaction because you're always going to be kind of juggling as to who's doing what. So the whole goal for, uh, I'll say, collaborative robotics within these spaces is how can I work within that interactive space? Right? How can I make these interactions be just very natural, um, which allows the, the machine or the robot to have very good speeds, right? Very fluid motion, um, not a lot of unexpected type behaviors, right? And it lets people kind of work in around it. Um, and what's good about that, like I had talked earlier, is customers becoming, or people becoming comfortable with automation, is people are just starting to learn how to, how to work around automation, right? So it's no longer scary, I don't have to be scared about it. Um, I'm going to start to learn that maybe I can um, sort of make the machine do something, right? If I start to go to the right, can I get the machine to go to the left? 
you start to get to these pretty natural interactions, um, and that also allows for a lot more adoption uh, quickly. Okay. So thinking about, again, our perspective of, uh, I'll say, the commercial space, which is, is where we play a lot, um, what are those benefits if we took, let's say, the same rules that we've applied to those commercial public spaces, but now we take those to the back warehouse um, and the industrial space? Okay. Well, if you look about it, there's a lot of things that actually carry over with benefit, even within the controlled environment. Okay. So yes, you can build infrastructure and make things incredibly efficient, okay. but do you want to? Right? If you don't want to make that large um, investment from an infrastructure standpoint, okay, easy setup. Right? How many people do you have to employ within your commercial business right, to support this piece of equipment? Right? How much money do you have to spend in order to set up that piece of equipment? Um, is it someone special like a consultant that comes in? Right? Or is it somebody you already have on staff that you can assign uh, you know, to this new vehicle or to this new project? Okay. So from an economic standpoint, that piece still holds true even in the industrial space. Okay. The second one is the flexibility. So by working in the public space and the commercial space, um, we've had to adapt and make a system that works really reliable in a highly dynamic system. Right? I never know sort of how many people I'm going to interact with. I never know really what changes are going to happen within those spaces. You know, I'll give you some extremes. Is uh, Go to a shopping mall sort of before Christmas season and during Christmas season, and you'll see the amount of change that happens. Okay? One, for small change, we can adapt to that. Right? So collaborative robotics, AMRs, we're very good at obstacle detection, obstacle avoidance for sort of normal obstacles. Okay? So if in a, a retail you put a display stack in front of me, I can go around that very, efficiency, uh, very efficiently um, and uh, you know, with very high probability of success. Okay? If I take and change all the aisles from horizontal to vertical, or I take the entire center section of a mall and create a, you know, a 30,000 square foot Santa land, right? the paths that I've trained probably break. Right? We're not at the point where all of those are going to be robustly figured out because the environment has really changed uh, pretty dramatically. Now, in the future, we'll say, yeah, we'll be able to solve those too. Okay. But in the meantime, if you lower the bar to retrain, okay, what you've done is you've solved that problem a different way um, very quickly. Okay. So as long as it's easy enough to retrain, then my only loss is, is one more training route. Okay. So the same is true in the manufacturing sector. If you look at, for example, lean manufacturing, Kaizen events, things like that, right, how often do you want to change to increase efficiency, and how do you do that? Okay. This is where I'll say AMRs um, and taking these lessons from a commercial space really help within that industrial space because it's very quickly to retrain and reset up without an infrastructure cost. So now when you're justifying sort of those changes, you can kind of zero out one of those line items, which is what's the, what's the rebuild cost for this change? Right? So that, that flexibility is something that really leads to um, I'll say higher efficiency because it allows for quicker iteration. We don't have this barrier anymore um, to those type of flexible changes. Okay? And then that leads to, in essence, no downtime. Right? If the person there can retrain that route because something has changed, um, you can quickly get back up and running um, and get those efficiencies. Okay. So with that, that concludes my talk. Um, if anybody has any questions, uh, I'll give one chance to shout them out here. 
Um, otherwise, uh, I'll, I'll be available afterwards. We'd love to talk to you. Um, if you want to see our automation um, in action, we're, we're a couple of booths over here. Um, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of partners. Um, so again, I believe at the show, uh, we have Dane Technologies, um, who's one of our OEMs for the, uh, uh, for the tug, uh, as well as a tenant, I believe, down here that has one of the uh, T7 AMRs uh, for floor cleaning. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about automation. So, um, so the question, the question was, it, um, I'll, I'll summarize really quick, is, is in essence like interoperability of, of kind of brain OS devices. So if, I've, if I'm mapped with one brain OS device, can I run another brain OS device within there? Even though maybe the form factor of it is different, um, including even from like a big down to a little. Um, the answer is yes, right? So the, um, from the infrastructure standpoint, we, we typically only have one home location. Um, so we're not using those as reference points in the same way that, that say a, um, um, I think maybe a Kiva system with a, with a lot of the barcodes on the on the floor are using, um, we're using it as a simple like single starting location, and then everything else is a visually scan matched uh, map that we've created, um, so those maps still hold true, right? And then the advantage of Brain OS is that um, that's part of kind of the library I'll say of learning, um, so if you do have a space where you're putting in like a Brain OS machine, um, if you had to swap out that machine or be able to use, say, a different machine, um, we have, in essence, that library to be able to pull from um, for all of that mapping data. Uh, yeah, so, so the way each are set up, uh, again, today we're, we're primarily, um, I would say, not uh, we're not operating like a cloud-level fleet management, right? We're operating kind of independently in robots. Um, so, so each machine would have either its start location or share a start location. You would build your build your pass or build your your task, right? With that with that robot in the space, right? And then be able to uh, be able to leverage those. Um, where where we'll end up, I'll say, with a lot more integration in the future, is like once you've used like one BrainOS robot, you really know how to use all of them. Right? And then because we have that back end all tied together, that allows for a lot of expansion of applications in the future. Right? So you start to think about all the data applications and things like that. Um, that's where you really get into sort of the platform effect as you start to integrate more and more robots on a single platform. Yeah, so uh, what I would say, uh, sorry, the question was is, how, how do we see in the future 
Um, robots getting more efficient, do they get faster? Do the safety standards get more lenient? Um, what, what I would say is the safety standards um, should never get more lenient, they should only get stricter, okay? So, so you're, you're really focusing in on, on, on honing safety um, from that standpoint. Where they get more efficient is, if you think about like the speed curve, it's, it's the behavioral model, right? So if I set a maximum speed because of safety, right? In a public space, what I'll say is like, um, two miles an hour, you know, kind of one meter per second. It's actually pretty quick, it's pretty quick in a public space if you have something approaching you like at that speed, okay? What's important for efficiency is how often can I sort of travel at that higher speed and how efficiently um, can I get around things and sort of stay at a higher speed. So in essence, if, uh, if you think about a more mechanical behavior, which is, which is sort of start, stop, you know, or jerky, Right? It's, it's in essence, it's driving down city streets versus a freeway. What, what makes a freeway more efficient is that you have a maintained kind of velocity typically, or the range of change is typically very low. Right? When you're dealing with kind of intersections and stop signs, that's why it just takes longer typically to go through, say, a city street. So more of the efficiency gains are, are really working around that behavioral model um, with interactions. Uh, you might increase speeds a little bit, but I'll, I'll argue that it's gonna be capped just on how comfortable people feel, right? So I, I don't know what the exact limit will be, but I can tell you, you know, 20 miles an hour within a, within a store is way too fast, right? So, so somewhere, you know, where we are today versus there, there's, there's a line of comfort. Um, today with the safety standards, it's essentially set, I think, around, I want to say it's maybe four miles an hour. Uh, I forget off the top of my head. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it is getting into that uncomfortable when you start getting faster than that. Okay, thank you.